Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? Another big thank you to Jeffrey Gordon of Ideal Video Strategies. He did the heavy lifting editing this episode, and I greatly appreciate his help. ADHD Essentials is part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. So listen to our partner shows, ADHD Rewired with Eric Tivers and Hacking Your ADHD with Will Kerb. ADHD Rewired is an interview-based show where Eric talks to ADHD adults and ADHD experts. And on Hacking Your ADHD, Will shares all kinds of wonderful tips on how to more effectively manage the disorder. Welcome to the show. Today, we're talking to Sarah Chayette. Sarah is a pediatric neurologist and an expert in both ADHD and autism. She's the co-author of two books on ADHD, and her blog, 123 ADHD, is featured in Psychology Today. In today's episode, Sarah and I discuss ADHD and the nervous system. Then, we shift into the intersection of ADHD and autism. We talk about their similarities and differences, the challenges with diagnosis, why kids with ADHD and autism might both miss social cues, but often miss them for different reasons, the roles anxiety and sensory challenges play in both disorders, and why symptoms matter more than diagnosis. All right, let's get rolling. Yes, I'm a pediatric neurologist, and I am in the Bay Area in San Francisco. So you work with people who have ADHD as well as people who have uh, autism spectrum disorder. Um, I'm a pediatric neurologist, as you said, which means that I deal with the nervous system, and that includes autism and ADHD. And I see kids, and then I also see their parents or some other adults who want to come see me to talk about these issues. When you say the nervous system, what do you mean by that? People are always asking, what's the difference between what I do and what a psychiatrist does? We both study the brain. As a matter of fact, that we both take the same board exam for our certification process. Both of us study the brain and deal with issues that involve the brain. But in terms of pediatric neurology, some pediatric neurologists don't like to do what have typically been called behavioral disorders. The nervous system includes the brain and spinal cord and muscles. So sometimes we see people with headaches or seizures or muscle weakness or tics. So it's nice. I never know what's going to walk into the door. And uh, I really love my job. How does ADHD play out in the nervous system outside of the brain? So the spinal column, the muscles, that stuff, is that playing a role in ADHD as well? Yes, it is to some degree. So I got interested in treating ADHD because ADHD winds up being a part of so many other things. So kids who have seizures, for example, 
are at a higher risk of learning disabilities and ADHD. So as part of trying to treat the whole person, you know, and not just focusing on the seizure disorder part, I started thinking about ADHD. Another way is headaches. Headaches seem to be hugely connected, meaning that the stress of having ADHD is a trigger for headaches and it can lead to the obvious problem of headaches. But when you talk to the patient and their family, understanding that ADHD is underlying the headaches is hugely helpful for treating the headaches. And uh, I think it's really underreported that connection between headaches and ADHD. So as part of my headache workup, I'm always asking about symptoms of ADHD as well. Finally, you know, a lot of kids have tics. Tics are repetitive movements that happen over and over again, the same way each time, sometimes hundreds of times per day. Examples would be eye blinking or grimacing your face or shoulder shrugs. The tics sometimes qualify as Tourette syndrome, and Tourette syndrome and ADHD are also linked. Kids with autism have other kinds of movements called stereotypies, which are a little bit different from tics, but these movement disorders are seen in both ADHD and autism pretty frequently. So, you know, I, I think that to be a good doctor, you can't just pay attention to the one thing. You have to think about all of the things together. One of the things that I hear about occasionally is sort of physical interventions for ADHD. So like movement exercises, basically. Where does that factor in? Is that, I don't know the science of that. So I'm, I'm hoping maybe you do, I guess. That's an interesting question. With younger kids, particularly, a lot of people go to occupational therapists who tell them that their child is sensory seeking, and that's why they move too much, or, you know, why, that's why they are all over the place. And I guess that's one interpretation of behavior. I think as a neurologist, I see the hyperactivity associated with ADHD, not really in terms of sensory seeking, but in the same way that I see people jumping from thought to thought, I think your brain is telling you to move from place to place. We do know that movement and exercise and I would define exercise as something that makes you sweat, is really good for your brain. It helps your brain focus. So I think that um, certain sports as well, which teach you to control your body, are also helpful for ADHD. As a matter of fact, the first book on ADHD that I wrote, which is called ADHD and the Focused Mind, was written with my kid's karate teacher. It happens to be, Brendan, the only book in history written by a pediatric neurologist and a karate master. My husband also uh, was a co-author. He's a psychiatrist. So this kind of combination is unique in all of recorded history. How that came about was that watching Pete teach my kids and other kids karate reminded me that the same kinds of things he was teaching them are helpful in the rest of their lives. 
As a matter of fact, he would have all the black belts and brown belts as they go through their ceremonies, write essays on what karate has done for them. And they all would say, karate helps me focus in the rest of my life. So it's a great question that you asked, you know, how does learning punches and kicks help you in the rest of your life? It helps you because the discipline that you need to do it, the ability to focus on one thing, the ability to take criticism and learn from mistakes, all of those things are really important in terms of focusing in the rest of your life. As a brown belt in Kempo, true story. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So true story. I completely agree. I've seen the same thing happen in my own life. Um, and my boys are starting to have that occur for them too. I have identical twin sons who are 11 years old. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Yeah. And they're purple belts. That's great. I think that, you know, when Bruce Lee was talking about, you know, flow like water and, you know, needing to empty your mind before you can do anything, I think it's really important to be able to concentrate on one thing at a time. And karate is just one of those sports where they really focus on that. You know, of course, you have to focus while you're hitting a baseball. Of course, you have to focus while you're trying to shoot a free throw. But in karate, it seems to be a real kind of core tenet of it from the earliest moments on. None of which is why I brought you on to the show. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, that doesn't matter. <laughs> we can go when we go, <laughs> admittedly. But I do want to at least start to look at things from the perspective that we had originally intended Yes. Which was the intersection of ADHD and autism, because that's not a topic I've addressed on the show yet. So can you just start us off on that a little bit? Yeah. I like to think of ADHD and autism as sort of cousins. Is that fair to say? I would say cousins is probably probably about the right uh, degree of familiarity or familial separation. First of all, the definition of particularly autism has been changing over the years. So when you and I were growing up, Brendan, you know, nobody got diagnosed as autism unless they were like nonverbal and banging their head in the corner. At this point, it's really been broadened to include a lot of kids and adults who would not previously have been diagnosed as autistic. And it's possible that the evolution of the diagnosis will continue to evolve over time. So when we talk about diagnoses, take it with a grain of salt in that this is just sort of our idea of what to call things at this point in time. The other thing that I want to make a point about diagnosis is that we don't really have the answer book. So there is no blood test, there is no genetic test, there is no MRI that really says what's autism and what's ADHD. And there's a lot of things that go into making a diagnosis. Prior to about five years ago, when the last edition of the DSM came out, you weren't really allowed to diagnose people with two different things in there with both autism and ADHD. However, since that DSM came out, which I think was 2013 or 2014, there's been more co-diagnosis of ADHD and autism. And I think 
that's very interesting. And that's where the cousins relationship comes up. They run in families. So if you have relatives with autism, you're not only more likely to have autism yourself or your kids, but you're, you're also more likely to have ADHD. So there is some genetic linkage there. I sometimes meet people who have an ADHD diagnosis and I'm like, ah, you kind of strike me a little more as autism. And then I meet people who have an autism diagnosis and I'm like, you kind of strike me more as ADHD. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And, and I think partly that's because of the fact that more higher functioning people are being diagnosed with autism than previously. If you're nonverbal, it's really hard to, you know, get a good assessment of your attention span. You know, it's, it's one of those things where, like I said, don't, take all these diagnoses with a grain of salt. One major difference, though, is that in autism, the fundamental core part of the diagnosis is difficulty relating to other people. Sort of seeing things from another person's perspective is very, very hard for both kids and adults with autism, although you know, it can be taught. It just is not something that comes naturally. And people with ADHD also sometimes have difficulty relating to other people, but for, for a different reason. Their brains are moving at a different pace often, and they may not be paying attention to cues, you know, nonverbal cues that other people are putting off. So they also may have some difficulty with social skills and with understanding what other people are thinking because they're not thinking the same way, but it's a qualitatively different type of difference with uh, the social skills. For social interactions, I like to use the metaphor of playing catch. It works in a lot of different areas for social interactions and communication. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to apply it right now and you let me know if I'm right. I can't wait to hear this. This will be cool. <laughs> My impression, based on what you said, is that when it comes to social cues and the difference between why someone with autism might miss a social cue versus why someone with ADHD might miss a social cue is that, and let me know if I'm wrong, the person with ADHD might just not realize that the ball had been thrown to them. Yes. And so they missed the ball because they didn't realize it was thrown. And they might see it as it whizzes by or they might not, yeah. but they missed the ball as a result. Whereas the person with autism might not even know there's a game of catch being played. Yeah. Or they might focus on the arc of the ball rather than, hey, we're playing a game and it's interactive and I'll throw high if you throw high and throw low if you throw low. They may, be, they may have a harder time tuning in to the social part of playing catch. Like, hey, this is fun. You know, it's back and forth but they may be able to tell you a heck of a lot about the angle of the ball or how the ball is spinning. So um, uh, somebody with autism may be hyper-focused on certain details and miss sort of what we would look at the larger part of the game. So, you know, for example, going to a store, the person with autism might focus on the parking space and whether they have a good parking space in front of the store rather than, hey, we're just, you know, going to the store. And, you know, it's nice to have a parking space, but, you know, the main issue is going to the store. So socially, that's obviously an opportunity to have a lot of um, missed social connections. Okay. So that's a difference. Yes. 
what are some other differences between ADHD and autism? And then if we can also talk about some similarities as, as well, I think that would help illuminate the relationship between these two, two disorders fairly well. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, we talked about the different social things, and I think that's probably one of the biggest differences there. Another difference would be in terms of the hyper-focus. So, I would say that kids with autism and adults with autism are sometimes very repetitive in terms of what they think about, and I see that less in ADHD. So, one another core tenet of autism is sort of thinking about the same things in the same way over and over again, particular fascinations. And of course, if you're thinking about those, it's hard to attend to other things. I think with autism, although you know people can hyper-focus, it's not so much the same theme that they're hyper-focusing on. It's not the like an attribute of the scene. So somebody with autism might hyper-focus on certain details, but that does they don't tend to hyper-focus on the same things over over and over again. Along with that is differences in sort of trying new things. A lot of people with ADHD are much more likely to try new things as compared to people with autism. This is not hard and fast. So, you know, some some people with ADHD don't like to try new things and that that's fine, but you know, when they sort of impulsively move on to new things, it's like their brain is seeking new stimulation, new, 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 new. And the kids with autism or adults with autism don't tend to be like that. Another core tenet, it's sort of like rigidity of thinking. It has to be a certain way. And that's part of autism. And that's going to resist new stuff because if it's got to be the same way, it's got to be the same way again and again and again. And then we don't have a new scenario. Yes, exactly. And and ADHD kind of seeks out the new things in general. It's, um, that's one of the possible theories as to in how an ADHD brain works, which means going for new things all the time. So circling back to the hyperfocus aspect, I think you might be using the term in a way that is a little more precise than how I was thinking of it when you used the term. Because you mentioned that someone with autism won't hyper-focus on the same thing over and over again. And I was sort of wondering about folks who have autism and are have those like obsessions that they couldn't come up with where I, I worked with a kid who was obsessed with China. Like that was his, everything circled back to China. When he was getting anxious, his thing was, I want to go to China. That's almost a perfect imitation of him too. I have one who wants to go to New York. Okay, yeah. <laughs> New York, New York, New York, New York. For him, it was whenever he got overwhelmed. Whenever he got emotionally overwhelmed, that was what he said. And I actually wound up helping him identify when he was getting overwhelmed because I was like, well, when you want to go to China, you probably need a break. Yeah. And it worked. So he was like, oh, okay. <laughs> what terminology would you use for that aspect of, of autism? Because assuming, I'm assuming that's not hyper-focused. We want to change the phrase. That's exactly right. So autistic people tend to be what people kind of say OCD or compulsive. It's like they're repetitively thinking of the same things over and over again that are themes that can go months or years. And ADHD people 
you know, so if given a task to do, they can hyper-focus sometimes on the task. You know, they, they're making their table and they're hyper-focusing on how the different columns and rows look like. So there can be some hyper-focus. But with the next, next task, it wouldn't necessarily be about columns and rows. It could be about something else. What are some, some of the similarities between the two disorders? So we touched a little bit on um, the genetic part of it, meaning that they can run in the same families. How the genetics translates to different brain chemistry or different brain structures, we don't know. You know, what's, what's the thing that would tip somebody into autism versus ADHD? We don't know. But we do know from family studies that both of these things are very heritable. So they're very ingrained in genes, although other things could also play a role. So if you have a difficult time getting born or emotional stress early on in life, all of those things can contribute to the diagnoses in both diagnoses. You know, there are ideas that autism is more prevalent in men in males. And for a long time, we thought the same thing was true of ADHD. I think as there's different diagnostic criteria and different ways of thinking about the disorders, we may see um, some shift on that to some degree. But these were both felt to be a little bit more male predominant. And the similarities is that, you know, we've been talking about compulsive thinking you could use the word attention for that. People with autism are paying attention to the wrong factors in the environment. So instead of focusing on somebody's face, they may be focusing on the little zipper underneath their chin when they are wearing a sweatshirt. You know, the attention is not appropriate for what it should be, so to speak. And attention, obviously, is the core issue in ADHD. So, you know, attention is an issue in both disorders, although sometimes in, in somewhat different ways. What about executive function? Because that's another key component to both of these disorders. I've done a few workshops where I mentioned executive function as it relates to ADHD in the title, and I had people come in really upset that I didn't spend the whole time talking about autism because <laughs> to them, like executive function means autism. Is that right? Oh yeah. Especially in education a few years back, that was especially true. So this executive function theme and, and concept is critical for the understanding of autism. And it's also critical for the understanding of ADHD, although it plays out differently in both disorders. So can we wander into that swamp a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So again, this is related to, okay, now that we have autistic people who are higher functioning, we're also expecting them to be organized. And if I have to summarize executive functioning, it's sort of like the mom part of your brain. So the mom, the mom part of your brain says, do this now, do that later, this is more important, put your stuff away, you know, be on time, that part of the brain, wherever it is, and people talk about frontal or prefrontal cortex, but everything is very related, so it's hard to know. That part of the, the thinking part is affected in both kids with autism as well as ADHD. In terms of what I see with autistic kids, they may not see the point in doing it. They may not see 
you know, they may not want to do it the same way. And in kids with ADHD, it's sort of like the impulsive stuff makes them more messy and, and they may sort of see the point in doing it, but it's just harder to actually execute. It sounds like we might get more resistance from the kid with autism because they don't see the point in doing the thing to begin with, or at least initial resistance. And with an ADHD kid, we might get them to sort of sit down at the table and be willing to start. But then when it comes time to actually start, then the resistance is going to come in as opposed to resisting before starting. Absolutely. And I, I want to also point out to listeners that we are speaking very generally. And, you know, I just wanted to say that because some ADHD people, you know, had a long history of losing things, become super careful and super compulsive about where they put things over time. So without the structure that they've created, they feel very anxious. And, you know, I should also point out in terms of similar things with both ADHD and autism, you know, we also have to throw in anxiety. We've touched on that here and there, but, you know, both of those disorders are intertwined with a lot of anxiety. Yeah, because of the, the significant rate of failure that is associated with both of them. And not as an insult, not derogatorily, but as a guy who has ADHD, I fail more than people my age who don't have ADHD. In other words, you're better at picking yourself up. You've had a lot of practice. <laughs> yeah, and, and I've become a really good problem solver as a result because I've seen so many different problems. <laughs> yeah, fall down seven, get up eight, right? To go back to martial arts. Right. But the main thing is that um, anxiety can worsen thinking in both ADHD and autism. You know, for example, when you're worried about something, it's harder to focus. Your brain has basically two parts. It's got the emotional or worry part of it, and it's got the thinking part. And when the emotional or worry part of it turns on, the thinking part turns off. And so, you know, that's why when you're in a state of anger or fear or sadness or whatever the emotion is, you can never think clearly. And when you come back and you think about the same thing, when you're calmer, it's always, always a little different, if not a lot different. And so when you're worried or anxious, it makes thinking less focused, which then creates a bad outcome, which then worsens the anxiety. And with autism, I think, as you were saying with your little kid, uh, with the China example, you know, not being able to kind of dictate the environment, not, not being able to control or to roll with the punches is difficult for kids with autism. The world is, is different from their world, and that creates a lot of anxiety as well their world being different than our world brings me directly to sensory input and the role that that plays in both disorders. But it, it's, a, it's a pretty significant component of autism. Yes. Can we go, go there for a minute and sort of play with that a little? So I did write a blog on psychology today about this. You can find it on um, the title of our blog is 123 ADHD. And it just just posted uh, a little while ago, the sensory issues are present probably in both disorders, but in autism, that seemed to have been gotten most of the attention. But I think it's present in both. 
we all experience the world in a sensory way and it's you know that's that's it that's how we do the world is by our senses and so you can imagine in ADHD if you have attention that's going to all sorts of sensory inputs like if I'm trying to talk to you but I am also paying overly amount of, of attention to you know the uh, smell that's emanating from my kitchen then my brain is hopping between you and the smell and you and the smell you and the smell and it's harder to concentrate and finish the conversation with you in in a appropriate way with autism they also talk about sensory overload as well, that being oversensitive to certain things. As a matter of fact, it's one of the core, well, one of the symptoms used in diagnoses. So kids with autism are felt to respond differently to pain. Sometimes it's respond in a hyper way. So being hypersensitive, for example, to sound. And sometimes it's being in a hyposensitive way like you know, breaking your arm and not seeming to feel it. In a more everyday example, falling and not worrying about your skin knee or not seeming to feel it. So again, um, why is that? Why, why, why a kid with autism will have their senses so finely tuned in some way and less tuned in some other ways we don't understand? But especially if if you're really focused on the feeling of the fabric against your skin and that's all you're thinking about, it's hard to deal with the rest of the world. So, you know, that's an area where sensory sensitivities interacts with attention and that's present in both autism as well as ADHD. That's also going to affect our levels of anxiety as well, right? Oh, for sure. Sensory overload. It doesn't feel good in any of us. We've all had it and you get tired and you just want to curl up somewhere. I know for me, in my house, the thing that is sensorily overwhelming me is we have birds and I'm allergic to them. So if I sit too close to them, I start to have trouble breathing, which is its own anxiety inducer. Right. But also uh, they chirp and make racket when we're having a conversation anywhere near them so all of a sudden i'm having this important conversation and then i hear like cheep, cheep, nah, 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 and i can't think anymore <laughs> i can't process and my anxiety immediately shoots up yeah it is very anxiety provoking isn't it i'm trying to give them to somebody <laughs> then you have to calm down before you can process again right and I don't know anybody who'll take your birds, but I'll keep an ear out. <laughs> <laughs> They're the straw on my camel's back. Like I'm keeping everything balanced and then the birds start going and that's one more thing that I can handle. And all of a sudden I need a break. <laughs> well, don't get a yappy dog. That's all I can say. <laughs> Our dog is kind of amazing with how little he barks. Oh, that's great. Yeah. He barks at certain other dogs that walk by the house, uh -huh. not even all of them. And that's it. Okay. I'm also wondering, I mean, I have a pediatric neurologist on the show right now and we're talking about sensory stuff. Those two things seem to go together. 
Oh yeah, because it's our nervous system that carries the outside world into our brain and our brain integrates it all. So your, you know, vision is uh, mediated by the optic nerves in your eye and goes to your brain and your brain puts it all together. Hearing is mediated by nerves. Sensation, you know, like touch, that's a nerve thing. Smell, obviously also a nerve thing. So, you know, all, all of these things, it's this, it's the nervous system, but we, and although we have an idea of the anatomy, like this one leads to that one, you know, we don't have a good idea about how these things process. So, uh, you know, like an MRI will tell us a little bit about anatomy, but it doesn't tell us how these things are working. It's like taking a picture of a tomato on the inside. You can count the seeds, but you don't know what the tomato tastes like, right? So we don't have what we need to study what's going on. Do you have any tips for how to handle the sensory overwhelm? Not necessarily treatment exactly, but like what can parents at home do to help their kids or maybe even themselves more effectively manage the sensory overwhelm that can come with autism or ADHD? Right. So recognizing it when it happens is step one. And that's where therapists can be very helpful at sort of saying, ah, do you see what you're doing? You know, this is what you do when you're getting sensory overload. There's various therapeutic techniques and those sometimes are done by like occupational therapists who do brushing for people who are touch sensitive. They kind of train them to focus on the ones that, that they need to focus on and to try to block out things. Yoga, sports, all of these things where you have to focus on just one thing and leave the other things alone are all going to be helpful in terms of focusing on the appropriate sensory inputs. What about the role of weighted blankets? Those are big now. Yeah, they are. So that's why I'm asking. What are they doing? You could look at it just as people who have weighted blankets may sleep better. The occupational therapist will talk about the behavior as sensory seeking, like they're getting deeper pressure, deeper sensory inputs. But in general, you know, I don't know why it works. I don't know if they're getting sensory whatever. If they sleep better, then they're probably in better shape. So. Uh, weighted blankets used to be super expensive, but now they're getting a little cheaper. So whether whether that is going to be better than piling on a couple of quilts, <laughs> it may be cooler, but um, you know there may be a cheaper hack to the weighted blankets. But getting sleep is important, and sleep is certainly disrupted in many disorders, including autism and ADHD. There's another similarity right there. People with ADHD often have a hard time both getting to sleep and staying asleep, and that in turn affects their focus the next day. Kids with autism also seem to have disruptions in their sleep cycle, and some of these kids go into terrible sleep and it it just really is very disruptive for the family. They have a hard time settling down. They have a hard time staying asleep and they may wake up at three in the morning and, you know, it's go time for them. So just being mindful of time, do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience? I would have to say that the important thing from my perspective is that you have a kid, you have a child or, you know, you have a, a, an adult that you care about. 
don't focus on the diagnosis. I think there is a hyper rush to get diagnosed early and easily. And part of that is because, you know, accommodations and different kinds of therapy become available with certain diagnoses. But as a child grows, their brain changes quite a bit. Physically, the brain of a younger kid is very different from an older teen or an adult. All of these diagnoses are labels to some degree, and it's really important to focus on the individual in front of you and think about them, their symptoms rather than their diagnoses. So, you know, if they're not having good interactions with other kids, that's a symptom, and how do you work on that? You know, if they're uh, not able to pay attention, that's a symptom. How do you work on that? But really kind of focusing on the diagnoses can be counterproductive because you start thinking of your kid in clinical terms and almost worse, the child themselves, you know, is hearing, I have this, I have that, I have the other thing. Nope. You know, you may have some focus challenges, you may have some anxiety challenges, you may have some rigidity challenges. Those are all areas where you need to work on. But I would try to get away from the part where you really focus on the actual diagnosis. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts, or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com, and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.